Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Giuliano, SEA's Chief Research Officer, and you're listening to the RICO Podcast, a special episode of the SEA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee, featuring talks, discussions, and interviews from the RICO Symposium, SEA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. Check out the show notes for links to our YouTube channel where you can find videos of these talks. This episode of the RICO Podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all the natural and delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy cold brew systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brew concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at toddycafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. Over the next three weeks, we'll be releasing episodes from The Evolution of Innovation, How New Ideas Will Shape Specialty Coffee's Future, a session at RICO Symposium this year. This session offered a glimpse into new ideas in specialty coffee from some leading thinkers and a discussion of how they're likely to shape the future of our industry. On this episode of the RICO Podcast, we're pleased to welcome Ever Meister, Managing Editor at Cafe Imports, Arno Holshu, Chief Operating Officer at Bellwether Coffee Company, Umeko Motoyoshi, VP of Product at Sudden Coffee, and Jay Rusky, co-founder and CEO of Fringe Coffee. Also, to help you follow along in this podcast, I'll chime in occasionally to explain who's talking. Led by Evermeister, the panel took the stage at RICO this past April to explore the relationship between Specialty Coffee's drive for constant innovation and its apparent reverence for tradition. What could innovation and irreverence do for specialty? I'll let Evermeister take it from here. So the evolution of innovation, how new ideas will shape specialty coffee's future. So the word innovation is actually just about as old as coffee's recorded history itself. Uh, It was coined somewhere between 1540 and 1550, um, and it's from the Latin word for to renew, for to to alter. Um, The word itself embodies that definition. It's not about creating something out of thin air, but about taking something that already exists, like the Latin word, innovare, and making it better, improving it. Um, Fundamentally, I think that's what specialty coffee is about. I don't think anyone in this room would claim that we invented coffee, but I think all of us are trying to constantly renew, alter, and improve it, to challenge it and to challenge ourselves in the process. However, even within our industry-wide history of, as movers and shakers, um, and our commitment to progress in coffee science, quality, marketing, accessibility, um, all of these things that we want to improve, even just appreciation of coffee in general, we're kind of odd. Um, we're kind of an odd bunch. I don't think anyone would disagree with the fact that everyone in this room probably is a little bit weird. Um, For all of our talk of these better systems that we're seeking, better husbandry, improved scientific understanding, more market access, better payment for small producers, um, we all still revere tradition. Um, What some people might call doing things the hard way. Um, 
In a lot of times, in a lot of situations, this kind of reverence that we have for tradition, I think, can be somewhat self-defeating. If you'll allow me an example,、um, we get really wrapped up in talk about the latest, most high-tech. Advancement in espresso machine technology, right? We want all these bells and whistles on our espresso machines. We want built-in scales and timers and auto volumetric controls and pressure profiling, access to recipes that are stored on the cloud. And yet, in order to source the coffee that we actually put through those espresso machines, we use sensory methodology that was developed in the 19th century and has hardly changed since it was invented. Yeah, I'm talking about cupping. Like, when's the last time you heard anyone think critically and evaluate the process that we use? That's one of the most fundamental tools for the industry. Have we ever really gotten together as an industry to improve it, to alter it, and to renew it? I think that、um, th- th- it's that thought that will. Drive us as we go forward and think about innovation. Just think about the fact that we call cupping a ritual. Should that word alone protect it from being improved? So that's what we're talking about in this session: improvement, renewal, radical disruption of the status quo, even our status quo.、Uh, there's no such thing as too much better. So why should we ever stop looking? Um, what if specialty coffee could be a zero-waste industry? What if we could use instant coffee technology to make sensory analysis more accessible at origin? What if we were actively looking for climate-adapted regions to grow coffee in consuming countries? What if literally anyone on Earth could roast coffee, the best coffee, and roast it with zero emissions? What if we radically altered transparency in order to create real-time financial records that could be checked and double-checked to strengthen the supply chain?、Um, we'll, as we'll hear, all of these ideas, all of these innovations, are more possible now than they probably have ever been before. So, joining me on stage for a roundtable discussion about how innovation will shape specialty coffee's future are three more innovators who are doing just that. Uh, identifying problems and opening up a world of solutions simply by taking、uh, what we already know and making it different, changing it, reimagining it. And、um, this is where I'll pause for just a moment,、um, just to sort of—I'm going off script. Hey,、uh, and this, 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 save this one for the blooper reel.、Um, I will sort of say that there, there can be a little bit of an anxiety, especially in a room like this when we're talking about innovative products, and you know, there's. Uh, you sort of feel like, well, why is this person's product being featured on stage, or why is that person's product being featured on stage? And I want to take a moment to remind everyone in this room that we are all working together to sell one thing. We all work in coffee. Every single person in this room, in this whole weekend's worth of events, we're all brought together because we want to sell better coffee. We want to sell coffee better, and so we're all sort of united under this one big umbrella. Every single person in this room does that a different way, with a different product, with a different approach. So the people who are here on stage are not necessarily p- pushing their products, but pushing the ideology of innovation and different ways that we can approach all of us doing that work together. So I just wanted to sort of offer that slight deviation from my really just wonderful script, right? Like Oscar-winning script writing,、um, just to sort of give that that little.、Uh, Disclaimer, I guess, before we get started. 
Um, so I'm going to call up my three roundtable panelists here. Um, the first is Arno Holshue. He's the COO of Bellwether Coffee, which is a company that does more than simply make zero emission coffee roasting machines um, that are easy enough for anybody to use, though that would be enough. Arno. <laughs> Next up, we have Umeko Motoyoshi. Um, she's the VP for product of Sudden Coffee, um, which is a specialty instant coffee brand that's transformed the way, uh, the image of soluble product and the potential to break through countless barriers to make coffee more accessible to customers around the world. And lastly, we've got Jay Rusky. He's the owner and farmer at Goodland Organics, um, which is the first commercial coffee farm in the continental United States. And he's the co-founder and CEO of Fringe Coffee, which is an organization determined to develop and support a network of coffee farmers in California. Hi. Hi. Um, Hello. So the other thing about the sort of hosting a roundtable and having a panel is that I find that the best panels are actually when you have a conversation. So I will hopefully be asking questions that I would love for you to answer, but I don't want this to be one of those panels where you necessarily we go down the line, everyone sort of answers. I would like you to also feel like you can ask each other questions or even ask questions of the audience, anything that sort of makes us feel a little bit more like a conversation and a little bit less like a game show in the 1950s. <laughs> Does that sound okay? Is everyone all right with that? You can be on board. Okay. So obviously you three have very different focuses in your work. You, you work on very different aspects of the supply chain and the products that you're working with and the people that you're working with are all sort of different and diverse. But I feel like there's a lot of ideological overlap in the things that you focus on and the, the innovations that you're sort of taking on. So I'd like to ask a question about um, sort of redesigning and disrupting that sort of status quo, specifically looking at accessibility to begin. Mm -hmm. um, accessibility is something that really struck me when I was listening to Freedom's talk about the idea that the, the sleeve itself is so small. It's such a small change. It's, the price point is really low. It's a very small sort of habitual buy-in that people can take on. It's something that you really have a, a hard time um, finding someone who couldn't be convinced that it's something that they could do. And accessibility means obviously a lot of things to a lot of people. Is something accessible in terms of price point? Is it accessible in terms of the amount of skill or education or expertise you need to have to operate it? So I guess I kind of want to ask what accessibility means to you in terms of the innovation that you're, that you're doing, and if you want to talk a little about how that has impacted your approach or, or impacted your you know, your sensibilities about coffee. About to speak is Arno Holshue of Bellwether Coffee. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say um, I look back to my earlier days, my beginning days in the industry, and uh, we had a self-image at least at that time, and I think to some degree it was borne out by reality that uh, the specialty coffee industry was a safe place to go and a safe place to have a career if you did not otherwise fit into the economy as it stood at that time. Mm. Um, you know, we... Uh, we used to joke that we were the revenge of the liberal arts majors. Uh, <laughs> I've heard other people, and we used to refer to us as the island of broken toys. Um, and that was a really cool thing. And I think that that was, um, first of all, that was sort of really beneficial to the people who could access that pathway. Uh, and so it was, it was good for that part of society. 
But beyond that, it made our industry really dynamic um, because we were willing to think outside the box and we, didn't, we weren't going to do things the way that other people had done them. Um, and what's happened as we've professionalized as an industry and as uh, we've really normalized into a more traditional um, sort of late capitalist model in many places in our industry, um, though that easy access for people who do not otherwise fit in has been barred. Mm. Um, there's, if you want to start roasting coffee to talk about what, what we're doing, there's a, a capital requirement, which is quite severe. Um, if you go out and you look for capital, as especially coffee business, uh, the going rate is about 7%. Um, so, because we are high-risk businesses, <laughs> um, and that's quite a burden to bear. Um, it's going to take you a long time to pay off that roastery if you want to do it. Um, it's much better just to buy from somebody else who's already roasting coffee. That's the more economic decision to make. If you were able to get the money, you'd have the skills acquisition piece, um, not just around roasting, but also around inventory control, inbound supply chain, outbound supply chain, uh, green coffee buying, like we all know what we do for a living here, right? Um, <laughs> And I think that, that innovation really can bring us back to a place that uh, allows people in. Mm. Um, new people, people who haven't had access, uh, while preserving the quality of our product and, and actually preserving the craft that we hold so dear. So we, um, I, I know it's a balance here about to what degree we should be promoting our own products, so um, I will try not to stray too, side on that, uh, too far on that side of the line, but um, what we have tried to do with our technology is create something that tears down all of the barriers to entry, uh, including that you, you need not purchase it, you can sort of access it with a monthly fee. Um, it's a little bit easier for people to swallow when they're just getting into business. Um, you don't have to know how to roast, you don't have to know how to buy green coffee, although all of that is open as well, um, and we welcome those activities as well, uh, because we view... Uh, Coffee roasting and sort of seen in a broader context, um, coffee production, everything that happens inside the production department or the roastery, that's like a really, really good economic activity that we have built a ton of barriers around. And uh, so, yeah, we, we think about ourselves as um, the pathway in for others. Mm. Speaking next is Umeko Motoyoshi of Sudden Coffee. So after you have your roastery set up and uh, mm. you are, you're roasting coffee and you're, you're looking for your, for your customers, right? And for your market. And um, that can be a, a tough, you know, that can be a tough place to be when you're in specialty coffee. Um, it's, you know, it's still not exactly a product that's totally understood. And there are still a lot of questions around the price point, questions around, okay, well, do I need to buy a $500 grinder? And do I need to buy into an entire, um, ideology. Mm. Is that what I need to do in order to drink nice coffee? Um, so what, uh, what Sudden really um, is uh, excited about is being able to uh, help specialty coffee companies extend that reach um, in a lot more of an easy and kind of just fun way. Um, so when you have your customers who, they aren't familiar yet with specialty coffee, it's such an easy way to get familiar and you can't mess it up. You just add water to it. It's an instant coffee yeah. and 
Um, it's a really nice way, I think, for specialty coffee companies to be able to reach new people. And, and then the accessibility also works for, for the customers as well. And I really enjoy that about what we do. Um, and, you know, Arno was talking about also uh, the barriers to entry for, uh, for roasting. And, and that, for me, also brought up... Uh, so I've worked in specialty coffee for about 10 years. I've seen the industry change a lot. And, um, it, you know, when I started working in coffee, it was pretty easy for people to get in when they belong to a very specific demographic. You could get hired, and then if there's, and then for being promoted and moving up, there's like the demographic narrows even more. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of for no good reason, you know, there's, there's no uh, grounds for that. Um, <laughs> coffee pun. <laughs> So uh, the <laughs> oh, those are loud. Great. Yeah, yeah, no, cool. that's on the table. Um, so that's something that I care about a lot is making sure that um, that just jobs in specialty coffee are accessible to people from all demographics. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's so vital and so crucial, and uh, that's something that I really enjoy about my team is we have such a diverse range of perspectives and we're able to learn so much from each other because everyone's coming from like this really different experience and creating that accessibility as well is uh, something I feel really excited about. Yeah, there, there are so many different ways of interpreting that word, I think, and what it means. And I think it's something that we're all really striving toward. And I think access to, to like a growing opportunity actually as producers to, I mean, that's amazing, the sort of the, um, kind of symbiotic relationship that you three sort of represent. Speaking next is Jay Rusky of Goodland Organics. You know, and I would love to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think what we all share in common right now, at least at the consumer level, is we're trying to create accessibility to quality. Mm -hmm. You know, and, um, and that's one of three components to what I've and we've been working on. Um, when I look at accessibility, it's really at three levels. Um, we have accessibility for our farmers to get um, quality plant material and a new market. Um, because I'm working with farmers in California, avocado farmers who have a lot of pressures in production. And they are looking for accessibility in markets that are growing and where we have a perennial crop that needs a 10-year, 20-year growth. So trying to provide accessibility to markets. And then finally, one part that I've always worked on was the marketing. I, I did farmer's market for 22 years, introducing exotic fruits, so allowing the consumer to have an experience of trying something new and, and then them, the customer, coming back to the farmer, having a connection is something I'm trying to put back into play here. So accessibility has, needs to be applied to all parts of this really complex supply chain that we have and it goes all the way to the end consumer because if we can take the experience that you two are doing to gain the consumer to willing to pay a, a few bucks more and to, and to highlight all the farmer's work, and if we can bring it all the way back to the farmer, then they, the farmer has accessibilities to better markets and hopefully a better return and a better future. Yeah. That, when you sort of started talking, you say all of us are working toward that access to, accessibility of quality, right? Access yes. to quality. And I was immediately thinking about how, 
you know, this, the loop of the work that the three of you are doing and the, the way that innovation will make this sort of accessibility happen is kind of amazing, even if you just kind of imagine a producer grows coffee um, in a place where maybe they're not familiar with growing coffee. So it's, there's a learning curve there, right? So you have to sort of, you're kind of guessing at what quality is. How are we going to make quality in this place where the, right. there is no precedent? Um, you can give that end product to a company where someone can roast that, almost immediately roast it, and offer, um, and then create instant coffee with it. So the barrier to access for sensory analysis is basically eliminated. What if we could, you know, be roasting at a, a cupping level and making instant coffee that sort of simulates the sensory analysis experience without necessarily sort of going through all of the hoops of doing that and then bringing that right back into a circle. So it's kind of amazing when you think about the ways that innovations feed off of each other mm -hmm. and the ways that they make new growth and technology, you know, possible. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that is really um, interesting. Um, and that sort of brings up to the, one of the other themes that I that we were sort of developing when we kind of came together with this session, which is our kind of knee-jerk response to change and to innovation and the ways that we tend, maybe it's a human response, tend to push back. Even though we want things to change, when they sort of start to change, you, you kind of flinch. Um, and as I've been listening to everyone speak, I also, and as I've gotten to know you all, I also have had to check my own knee-jerk reactions in a lot of cases and sort of, I mean, here I am reading off of a paper. Uh, I don't even have an iPhone with me. Um, do you think that there's, you know, do you think that you have a particular approach or response to when you're speaking to someone who you can sort of feel them close off or you can feel their skepticism? You know, what, what kind of approach do you take when you're trying to help someone overcome their progressive phobia, I guess, is the... <laughs> Speaking now is Umeko Motoyoshi. Um, I like to, I, I, what I've found is listening mm. more, than, more than talking or more than explaining um, is really helpful for me. I, I really empathize with that kind of feeling of being, um, uh, feel, feeling perhaps challenged or feeling like you you found a way to make your business work that you that you like and that's been successful. And uh, when there's someone doing something different, sometimes it can feel like there's it's it's a challenge to your model or a challenge to what you've accomplished. And I you know I really empathize with that. And I like to I like to really just listen and hear that. And um, for you know from my perspective, it, it's been helpful to uh, to just share where we're actually where we're really coming from, which is we love, you know, cafes, we love specialty coffee. We're asked a lot if we're trying to replace cafes or if we're trying to replace baristas or, um, or that kind of thing. And I, I get why people ask that. And we <laughs> love cafes <laughs> and want to extend the reach of cafes. And uh, I've worked in specialty coffee, in the traditional kind of specialty coffee for 12 years now and I, love it and I want to make that more accessible and approachable for more people because I think it's such a wonderful thing to share. Um, so that's what, it, you know, that's where I'm coming from and I like to just listen and be like, yeah, I, I hear you. I felt, like, I've, I've felt like that a lot in my life about different things that come up. And uh, I've seen that there, you know, like, 
like uh, you were saying, there's been this really great uh, kind of sy synergistic, excuse my buzzwords from the <laughs> 90s. Um, <laughs> Hashtag synergistic. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there's been this really, you know, synergistic uh, path forward, but also just like this expansion. Um, that's really neat. Yeah. You also probably have the benefit of having someone go instant coffee and then you make it for them and it's like, you know, right. like a commercial. Right. You know, like a made, like one of those early morning infomercials. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, but when, whenever I make the coffee for someone who is not familiar with specialty coffee, they, right away, they'll be like, this is really, you know, this tastes like a, like a hot fruit juice. This is really weird. This is hot like a light roast. Juice. And I'm like, yeah, but also, like, it's instant coffee. And you didn't, like, notice that. <laughs> so that's, like, always a fun thing. Hot, hashtag hot fruit juice. Yeah, it's totally, like, they fixate first on, like, this is a different kind of coffee than I'm used to drinking mm -hmm. um, because of the flavor profile of, like, a light roasted kind of, you know, especially coffee. You probably come up against a lot of that, too, where it's people like, you know, coffee from California, like... Speaking now is Jay Reske. Yeah, it's just like what you went through is people will have this, um, this ingrained concept that instant coffee is going to taste like this, and you're way over here. And so that's a big reach for you. But I think it, you as a person and your founders have this certain personality that once you get to the point where you're sure it's going to happen, there's a tenacity. And so you get a little bit resilient to that once you, you're confident and you see the vision going forward. Because I spent 10 years growing coffee in the closet quietly, like just a few trees. Not literally. Not really in the coming closet. out. And then I was really nervous because I, like, okay, we're going to get these cupped finally. Uh, and then we got great scores on the table. And then I took a further step out. And then we. Um, more pushback, and then we started opening up tours on the farm because people thought I was growing them in a greenhouse, and they didn't know we were growing with avocados on the hillsides. And so, um, so the progressive phobia had different layers to it that yeah. I didn't mm -hmm. see. Um, but one thing that I have noticed in the last few years of attending the symposium, a lot of the players that are really um, quote innovators that are coming in are coming in from other avenues. Yeah. Um, and I think this stems from, uh, we are really an a, a agricultural product. And there's a lot of farming around, and farming has tradition. And then there's tradition and systems that are almost centuries old that went all the way to the consumer. And so now we have forums like this where we're bringing other people in to give this outside perspective to things. And I think that's helping. I see this progressive phobia begin to break down. Um, and I still see room for all of us to attack it, you know, it, it, all the way down to the roasting uh, machines and even the delivery system. So it's really a fascinating time in, in the whole coffee industry, not just specialty coffee. Yeah. Up next is Arno Holshu. Uh, I, I would say that a bit like Ameko, I, I start with uh, empathy uh, because I am a nostalgist. Like, I own a 35-year-old pickup truck that's my pride and joy, and uh, I like, I, I really, I listen to old-time radio theater, which it does not get much more dorky than that. Um, I love a lot of the past, but I think that we in our society are at a place where we really need to understand the appropriate role for nostalgia, mm -hmm. and it is not the guiding light of our business practices or our production modalities, because that 35-year-old pickup truck that I have, 
is um, it was really fuel efficient for its time, but it is no longer the best <laughs> truck on the road. And um, so I don't drive it every day, right? I have it, I love it, I like to work on it. And I think that that is really sort of where nostalgia belongs. It's a thing to enjoy. Um, it's, a, it's a thing to learn from. And then, you know, after I've had that moment of empathy with people, I'm like, okay, uh, let's have a debate on the merits, right? <laughs> um, and I, I think that that debate, uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to have that debate because um, if you look at other things that were held dear in, um, in history, um, that were beautiful in their own right, but weren't really appropriate for the time. You know, I like to use the, the example of the illuminated manuscript. It's like, if you were making illuminated manuscripts, you probably thought that they were the cat's meow, and in fact, they were totally beautiful. But when the printing press came along, it was a huge democratization in terms of the dissemination of knowledge, of ideology. It allowed for a very different debate that ended up with the Enlightenment in, in Europe. Um, and, and that is really where, I mean, we don't see ourselves as necessarily the Gutenberg printing press, but uh, we, we do think that we're the sort of technology that allows us to do what we want to do, um, but do it in a way that is more appropriate for the times we live in. Um, the, somebody brought up the notion of cognitive dissonance yesterday, and that, that rings very true for me. Uh, when people are talking about the impacts of climate change on coffee farmers, and trying to say that these coffee farmers are in fact equal partners in our industry and that we don't just ride on their backs. Um, and then they go back to their roasteries and they fire up an old uh, open flame drum roaster with cast iron plates fore and aft um, with a giant uh, afterburner on it. And then they, they roast their coffee and in order for it to be delivered fresh to their cafes, they have this like kind of very this, this very spendy in terms of gasoline delivery route that the driver has to run in the morning and everything has to be done in this way because quality is the only thing we care about. Um, I'm sort of like, you know, you could have that quality um, without all of these other trappings around it. Mm -hmm. And so you need to question for yourself, like, was it the high quality coffee you wanted or, or was it the imagery of high quality coffee as it is derived from the past? Wow. And that, I think, speaks to everyone on this panel, too. It's like, is it the high-quality coffee do you want or the theater of making it? Right. You know, is it the high-quality coffee that you want or the, the origin story that we've all told a hundred times that's super problematic, you know, and we could be growing coffee in our own country? Um, that, I mean, I think that that is an incredible thread to sort of take away from that, you know. I'm just going to sit with that for a second. <laughs> I'm just going to have a feeling. I'm just going to let a feeling wash over, my <laughs> wash over me here on stage. Um, wow. Okay, so what are the other things that I wanted to talk about? And that raises this, this sort of point for me. And Freedom's Talk calls to this, and, and some of the discussions that we'll have later on today, I think we'll talk about this. But we kind of focus on the idea of waste. Um, and I think that everyone is really focused on eliminating waste wherever possible. And one of the ways that we sort of really focus on um, waste reduction is with tangible things like renewable or non-renewable resources, pollution, energy. Um, but I think we also can think about waste reduction in terms of people power. How much are we wasting of either physical or emotional or intellectual resources? Um, and so I kind of want to ask a question about where, where waste reduction or where 
efficiency kind of fits into what you do. And again, there's, this is another uh, thing that is, ha has interpretations on multiple levels. And so I'm, I'm really curious um, if that's a consideration and, and where you think that that falls into your work. This is Jay Reske. I like to uh, somehow add a monetary value to waste. And mm -hmm. for example, in California, water. Mm -hmm. There's a really defined value on what we do with water. Every drop counts, how you use it, how you reuse it, how making sure it's when it's being used, it's used in the right chemistry, in fact, for the trees. So um, that's kind of where we are trying to make a, a difference. And we are working with like avocado growers who have been there for 30 years. And it's been really surprising to see some of the inefficiencies that are built into their system. And there are rather simple technologies, um, like sensors, like everybody knows when to turn water on, but people struggle to know when to turn water off because you can't see it. You just kind of look at the trees and there's a delayed response in the, in the canopies. But uh, by taking these sensors that are readily available and rather cost effective and showing the farmers the difference, mm -hmm. And it takes really a whole season to show that difference and do a monetary change. We, get, we can get farmers to use 30 to 40% less water because they're just using it a little more efficiently and the innovation's a little more friendly, finally. So, so that's one example, but you really have to like put a money value to it. And I think some of the, the waste that we encounter, it, we have such a streamlined disposal process that there's no it's hard for us to gauge that value. So you'll see a lot of conservation efforts around the world where people are trying to monetize it and make it, make it feel not only like they're wasting money, but there's a benefit to them financially in the future to conserve water so they can farm next year. Or to, the fisheries are great examples. People are now privatizing fisheries successfully because they're giving the ownership to the farmer of the, or, or the fisherman who is really the farmer who's protected their fisheries and follows rules. So, from, from a global perspective, I see that as a pretty good paradigm of successful conservation efforts. Speaking now is Arno Hoshu. Yeah, I would say too, I think that the notion of growing coffee closer to where it is consumed, it was referenced yesterday in terms of building mm -hmm. uh, domestic markets in what we traditionally refer to as countries of origin, right? Maybe it's time to rethink them as also countries of consumption. Um, and that here too would reduce the food miles for our coffee. Yeah. So, which is never to say that we wish right. to d displace what's coming, but I think that, that your approach to farming has, has other uh, ways of reducing waste. Speaking is Jay Reske. Yeah, well, I, I do think that, like, um, one thing that I've been, aspect of coffee I've been trying to look at is from farmer mill to you to the roasters, where that system is, and I think the direct trade between the farmer, the mill, to the roaster is actually making a significant change in those, those what we call field miles or product miles. Mm -hmm. I don't have any of the numbers project, uh, project that. Um, of course, I'm growing coffee in Southern California, which is a high income region and consumer region, and that has an obvious advantage, but we still have to figure the ways in which the, on the traditional regions, how we get that more efficient. I think there's some machines that will help. I think um, Daniel Jones, who's speaking after this, has actually a pretty sophisticated technology that will help do this traceability technology to help everybody kind of start to see how it moves through the channels and start adding that value component to it, which will hopefully start changing the behaviors of how we 
uh, view coffee and we buy it and consume it. So um, you're right on to think that you know, it's these little aspects of this value chain that we have to attack. So. This is Umeko Motoyoshi. Yeah, so, and then the, the, cost of, the cost of shipping instant coffee um, and the carbon footprint, uh, the, re the drastic reduction in the carbon footprint of shipping instant coffee as opposed to shipping roasted coffee is um, phenomenal. To me, it's, it's really incredible. The, you know, the weight of, of a cup of coffee when it's in instant coffee form is a, is a fraction of the weight of a cup of coffee when it's in um, whole bean form. So, you know, it's like grow your coffee in California, roast it really close, and then you can ship it anywhere you want in an instant mm. coffee form for uh, a fraction of the price, and the carbon footprint is, is drastically reduced. Um, at, at, so at Sutton, we, what I think is most visible in terms of, of like, um, sustainability uh, and waste reduction is the uh, reduction in polypropylene plastic waste that we were able to achieve when we switched to using um, compostable packaging. Um, and that's what people can see right up front and um, behind the scenes what's made really invisible in uh, any kind of food production manufacturing is the, just like the massive amount of waste that goes into putting a product into a compostable package. Um, there's like water waste, plastic waste, a huge energy consumption, and that for sudden has been like a huge focus is reducing that. Um, in our first uh, two years of, of business, we, we halved our water consumption um, through efficiency, through uh, creating better systems for how we make our coffee. Um, I developed a, a system for brewing our coffee that uses our water much more efficiently, so we're able to use much less water to brew the same amount of coffee. Um, we, we reduced our energy consumption by 90%, um, and we reduced our plastic waste by 90%. Um, it's, it's stuff that all happens behind the scenes, and you can't, uh, you can't look at our website and see like necessarily that we're an operationally, uh, like we're an ops-focused uh, company. But we have like this incredible core competency around operational uh, efficiency because our CEO Josh, um, he's uh, he worked for McKinsey. He was a McKinsey consultant. Um, he's an industrial engineer, uh, and we have I've learned so much from him, and that's enabled us to really like make such a huge impact on how our business works. So I I really in, I for me coming from just specialty coffee world where that kind of stuff is really not focused on, like operational efficiency isn't like necessarily a huge focus for yeah. small coffee companies. It's mostly about like, oh, we got to keep our doors open, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, just having that like marriage of, of the specialty coffee world and also like this really crazy uh, uh, operational efficiency is, has been phenomenal to learn from. Yeah, I like to interject uh, a good example of where your product has helped in energy efficiency. So when I go backpacking, I had this thing where I'd carry a little grinder, pour over set, filters, because it was just so rewarding to have a really nice cup of coffee up in the mountains of the Sierras. But then you're done brewing, you have the grounds, you have the filter, you have, you know, 1.8 pounds of equipment. <laughs> but with sudden coffee, it's like 
boil the water, put it in, you can have the enjoyable cup of coffee without carrying stuff and having the waste. And so it was kind of a, a really uh, a great example of how efficient you can get for quality coffee. So I just wanted to interject that in. Yeah, I can totally second that. I'm a really ardent backpacker and I always take sudden, so. I wanted to raise a different kind of waste. Uh, I mean, at Bellwether, like the whole waste reduction thing is super front and center for us. It's very visible for us because we don't have an exhaust stack and CO2 and other, um, and long chain hydrocarbons are even worse in terms of carbon footprint. Like we cut that out. So that's like obvious, but there's this other kind of waste that we endure and that we allow to happen in our industry, which is the, uh, the waste of human potential. And um, I ran production facilities for a long time. That was sort of, uh, that was the heart of my career thus far. Um, and I've watched really talented, really dedicated people fall prey to repetitive stress injuries or back injuries um, because a lot of the ways that we do business were invented in like the 50s and 60s. And um, you know, if you roast on like a, on a, on an old UG22 and you don't have a pneumatic loader or a bucket loader, you're climbing up on a stepladder with a 40 pound bucket of coffee 20, 25 times a day and doing this, which is like not a super ergonomic gesture. Um, and I, I, I know people, friends of mine, who uh, were not able to continue with their chosen profession of coffee roasting because they were injured by that activity. And one of the things, one of the many things that we want to do here is really take what we thought was the most crucial part and the most valuable part of coffee roasting and preserve that while stripping out some of the things that were maybe wasteful of people. Um, and, and that was sort of the physical injury aspect mm -hmm. of it. So uh, you don't need to do that to roast on one of our roasters. Um, you, um, there are no exposed belts. <laughs> uh, there's, um, you, you, you don't really even know how to, like, need to know how to maintain it. Um, we can take care of that for you. What you need to do is, is you need to have a passion for and a, and a desire to roast coffee, right? And, um, and if you have that, we've provided what we think is like the greatest tool ever for that. Um, if you wanted a workout, like totally, there are tons of CrossFit gyms where you can <laughs> do those things uh, and gain that physical strength. Um, but we thought that maybe it was time, again, to sort of like take this thing that we love so much, this, this I think about coffee really as communication. You're, you're communicating this aesthetic experience to somebody. Um, and we wanted to preserve that activity while um, bringing it into the 21st century or even just like the late 20th century. <laughs> yeah, I think that human potential is, is another thing that I see for all three of you, right, basically. You know, like Umeko, you're, you're eliminating the need for um, any of the sort of uh, ideological or cultural barriers that people have about specialty coffee and have the potential to reach an audience that wouldn't otherwise feel like this was a product for them because suddenly it's the easiest thing in the world. It's as easy as making, it's as easy as making crystal light, actually. <laughs> that still exists. Um, but I think that that, you know, that potential to just get to people and with roasting as well, the idea that anyone could roast, we're wasting this potential by keeping people out of the industry, by telling them that they, they don't have the skills, by telling them that they don't have the physical capacity to do a job that we can change to make it so that everyone has the physical capacity to do it. And I think, um, you know, Jay, the work that you're doing as well, diversifying the crops that someone can grow and, and increasing their potential as farmers by offering them an alternative that is economically viable and that 
can create a, a totally new market for them that's like capturing what would be a potential um, loss or a potential just zero, you know, and really, if you'll pardon it, planting something where nothing was growing before. So I think that that, you know, for me, innovation is a combination of these things, right? Like um, accessibility, uh, waste reduction in, in all of these different ways, and then just improvement in general. So, I mean, this is a really magical, I don't know, I'm having a great time. I don't know about you. <laughs> this has been fantastic for me. So I have one last question that's kind of a big one, but I'm, um, I don't want you to overthink it. Um, and I basically want you to sort of think in the spirit of innovation, outside of the, the work that you're doing, I want to know something else in coffee that you see as being something that is almost untouchable or is a tradition that we hold really, really dear that you would like someone else, <laughs> maybe because you're busy, to radically re-engineer or redesign. And it could be anything. It could be um, a, a particular brewer. You know, any, any, anything that comes to mind. Don't think about it too much. This is Arno Holshu. I think the packaging. Mm. Packaging is the number one thing for me. You know, we like like gold standard for sustainability is a paper bag with a PLA liner that mm. then has associated with it very very costly supply chains to get the coffee there while it's fresh. Um, so we yeah I think we all know it right. <laughs> Speaking is Umeko Moriyoshi. Um, I worked in cafes for a really long time, uh, for like a decade, and there's a lot of waste that's baked into how cafes operate. Um, when you're making coffee, you know, it's, it's, it's like by definition going to be wasteful when you brew an air pod of coffee. Um, the water that you use, a good percentage of it is retained in the coffee bed and you just throw it away. So there's, you know, there's that, but also there's you rinse your group head every time um, you pull a shot, you rinse your uh, filter every time you want to brew a pour over, um, you are constantly using all of this water. There's a lot of, there's so much coffee waste. Um, and I, you know, I think also just like in a competition, for example, there's, there's so much coffee waste involved in that when you're wanting, I, I competed for the first and I, I think probably the last time last year, and I was like, oh my god, I'm wasting all of this coffee. And then I'm going up and telling these judges how much I like respect this coffee, and I just <laughs> threw out so much of it, just practicing, you know? Um, and I just think there's so many um, center, like so many centers of, of waste that we don't really think about because we feel like it's necessary in the service of presenting quality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that you absolutely can have quality, beautiful, brilliant, clear quality, and um, produce your waste by a lot. So I think the concept that I would like to examine more and sort of see us start to dismantle is the idea that um, efficiency uh, and, and um, quality are, are mutually exclusive. Next up is Jay Rusky. Yeah, Ooh. woo. So the question was that what innovation out there in the coffee world I would like to see that may be not obtainable, is that, I don't know. Can or I, cannot be obtainable, whatever. I have this problem because I think everything is obtainable <laughs> with technology <laughs> and, and brain power and, and group brain power. But I just want to see if you save 10 cents on packaging and shipping, that goes all the way back to the farmer. I'm, if the farmer can get paid there so that they can you know, get paid 
better for their crops so they can um, take care of their families better, now put nutrition on, now get better plant material, provide you know, um, disease-free plants uh, because they're better nutrition. And there's this, I think there's an interesting um, result when the producer gets paid better. And that would be a fascinating case study to see if we can make those changes. And I know there's these systems in place that would make it very difficult. So um, that would be the single goal for me. Yeah, can I, I, I just wanted to build off of that. I think that sort of like in order to achieve that, um, the innovation and in order to achieve many of the goals that we heard about yesterday, the innovation that we need most is one of culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and we yeah. need to examine the culture that we have built and decide what about it is worthy carrying, worthy of being carried forward and uh, what about of it is more worthy of critique. Um, because we are, we are supported by our culture that we have built, we're buoyed by it, we're protected by it a little bit, and we're also hamstrung by it. And, and it's a self-inflicted wound a little bit these days. So, um, you know, I, I would agree with many of the speakers yesterday that it's time for us to take a cold, hard look at ourselves. Awesome. Good. Thank you so much. This has been a really, uh, I mean, I, I'm really charged up by this conversation and I hope that this has been inspiring for a lot of folks in the audience. Um, well, just to sort of wrap up um, this particular session on innovation, um, I personally, this is about me because I'm the one with the microphone standing on stage right now, um, I definitely feel like a lot of uh, what we sort of talked about and everyone who was on stage, everyone who's involved in this, and even just the energy in the room, um, uh, felt really synergistic. And I feel like it is, it's really important for us to think, while we're thinking about these innovations and while we're thinking about the work that everyone's doing to make coffee better, to remember that we are sort of all kind of in it together. There is a sense, you know, I think that the specialty coffee industry is funny in a lot of ways, and, and one of them is this sort of fraternal um, uh, feeling that we have when we all come together and sort of even just describing what I was doing this weekend to people who aren't in coffee and you know, they're like it sounds like a big like a family reunion so yeah it sort of is that way and there of course is competition and some competitiveness and some degree of um, tension in what we do because we all are very passionate about the work that we're doing and the industry that we're in but I do also think that Ultimately, we're all sort of in this together with the idea of making better coffee and making coffee better. Um, and innovation, obviously, is the, the thing that we're all pushing toward. It is the cornerstone of our industry. Thank you all so much for this session. I really appreciate it. That was Evermeister, Arno Holshu. Umeko Motoyoshi, and Jay Ruski at Rico Symposium this past April. Remember to check our show notes to find a link to the YouTube video of this talk and a link to the speaker bios in the Rico website. This has been the Rico Podcast, brought to you by members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy. <laughs>